0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, Church. Uh, Happy Reformation Day slash All Hallows' Eve It's crazy to think that one of the the main reasons that we get to worship together this morning like this with our very own Bibles and with the confidence of a salvation that was given to us by Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, is because a devout man named Martin Luther challenged the Catholic Church by nailing his 95 Thesis to the door of the All Saints Church over 500 years ago today in the year 1517, which inspired the Reformation that followed. Uh, Many historians actually suspect that that Luther nailed the thesis to that church on All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, because it marked the beginning of the the Christian holiday All Hallows' Tide. And then the next day that followed would be All Saints' Day. So a day for which to remember and pray for the past saints, martyrs, and, and believers who'd recently died. And since it was called All Saints' Church... That church in particular would have been pretty packed on All Saints Day, and ensuring a large number of people would have seen his uh, thesis. Whatever the reason he, he did that, though, uh, this is a noteworthy day for us as Christians. And so I think it is important uh, that we do acknowledge and remember those mighty and faithful believers, this great cloud of witnesses like Martin Luther who, who came before us and, and paved the way for the church as we know it today today. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll also be reminded of this topic in the upcoming passage from Luke that many prophets and apostles were killed or persecuted in order to proclaim God's word in the kingdom of God. Uh, so, so when we think about it, so many believers, so many faithful faithful believers, have sacrificed and given so much in service of our Lord, also that we could hear the gospel and know and worship Jesus ourselves. Thankfully. Uh, passages like Hebrews 11 and 12 tell us how we can, we can look back and, and, and also honor these believers, these past believers who paved the way for us in Jesus' name. As uh, It says specifically in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we honor those who, who faithfully lived and died before us? We do what they did. We do what they do, we set our eyes on Jesus so that by his grace, we can lay aside our sin and our burdens which weigh us down and then live this Christian life and calling with faithfulness and with fortitude. And as we turn to Luke this morning, this this really is the message, the, the message to see Jesus, to set our eyes on him. Because as we'll learn, what we dwell on will determine what dwells within us. What we dwell on will determine what dwells within us. So if you want to turn with me to Luke 14, or Luke 11, sorry, starting at verse 14 to 36. Luke 11, 14 to 36. It'll be behind me on the screen as well, and I want to say a special thanks to Alden this morning who's doing PowerPoint, because I gave him a lot of stuff to put on there this morning. So thank you, Alden. All right, let's turn to scripture here, Luke eleven fourteen 14 to 36. It says, now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if, I, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot going on today, and we're going we're gonna to get into it. All right, well, these days, one of the telltale signs letting us know that October 31st is, is coming around again is when that, that seasonal store, Spirit Halloween, sets up its shop in some abandoned buildings and hangs its giant orange banner over this old storefront. I have a pic behind me that shows that. There you go. Right? In fact in fact this has kind of become a, a running joke on the internet over the past couple of years. Many memes have, have surfaced which suggest quite humorously that that any department store or building which is left empty or deserted for even a moment will will eventually become the temporary residence of a spirit Halloween store as if it's just waiting in the shadows, right, for stores to shut down and clear out so it can just take over and move in. I have a, there's a whole bunch of memes about that. You wanna you want show the rest of those, Alden? Yeah, there you go. Empty grocery store shelves, abandoned bases. You can keep going. Yeah, these are my favorite ones. I don't know if you can read that. Okay. Bookstore going out of business in the summer, Spirit Halloween. You can keep going, yeah. Yeah, they're even taking over Jedi temples, things like that. Um, is there more? Did I do another one? Yeah. Is that it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's enough. There, there's so many. Um, anyways, I'm sure you get the idea. If, if there's an abandoned building, chances are Spirit Halloween store is going to move in. Unless that is a Just Furniture store has already beat them to it. right? But, but anyway, those memes reminded me <clears throat> of the parable about, about demons that, that Jesus just told us about, right? He, he says that if, 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 if they find our souls vacant, they'll eventually move in, right? Or, or move back in even with some of their friends who are worse. Um, as Daryl Bach writes, Jesus' point is simple. When you are blessed by a cleansing of evil that allows you to receive fresh spiritual input, do not leave your inner house, quote-unquote house, empty. The risk is that the void will be refilled with something even worse than what had been banished. Neutrality even is emptiness, a void that eventually is filled by something, often something like what was there before. When I, when I read this passage from Luke, uh, I often think of the claims of of. Buddhism, which teach that the path to enlightenment or nirvana or inner peace, is, is to completely empty yourself, empty your mind, right? But Jesus is saying that to be emptied or rid of, of what is evil or distracting or false or worldly in our hearts and in our minds, that's a good start, but that if you simply remain empty without filling that emptiness with something else, you're basically just inviting something worse than before to fill that space. Jesus explains it another way. He says that in order to remove the darkness, we must set our eyes on the light. But then in order to keep that darkness from returning, we must be filled with light, right? This is also a reminder that there is no neutral ground here. We're either filled with darkness or being filled with light. In fact, Jesus says pretty clearly that when the eye is healthy, that is when we're dwelling upon that which is true and good and holy, then the body will be full of light and will be like a lamp ourselves. But if the eye is bad, if it's primarily dwelling on darkness or even upon anything that just isn't light, then darkness will find its way back in. And so again, whatever we dwell on will determine what will dwell within us. And to emphasize this, he also gives us a warning. He says in verse 35, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. On that, on that end, you know, I, I think when a lot of people read this passage about demons finding their way back into your quote-unquote house, your soul, you know, we get, sometimes I think we might get unnecessarily afraid of demons demonic possession or we sensationalize the idea or something like that, Um, visions of the exorcism in our head or whatever, right? Or or maybe you just don't know what to think about demons at all. But the truth is Jesus and the Bible are pretty clear on the fact that the Satan exists and, and that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but that it's a spiritual one against the principalities and powers of darkness. Even those who had witnessed Jesus cast a demon out of the mute man didn't question the idea that they were witnessing a demonic possession. However, they did question who Jesus was and by what authority he did it. But in our day and age, I think we do have a misunderstanding of demons. So first of all, I wanna just ensure you that tonight, if you see any decorations of demons or anyone dressed up as the devil with red horns and a pitchfork while they're trick-or-treating or something, don't be afraid. They're actually just dressed up as the Hollywood or Looney Tunes version of the devil because I guarantee you, he looks nothing like that. And why would he? One of his favorite tools is deception and lies, which means it makes more sense that he'd look like someone who we'd be tempted by. In fact, the Bible warns us to be on guard from even false prophets and liars who tickle our ears with with boasting about their faith in righteousness and, and, and righteousness and their fake promises and all that. Because as it says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 to 15, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their end will correspond to their deeds. So, so when Jesus tells the crowd to be, to be careful, lest the light in them is darkness... This is really the warning. It doesn't mean we're all going to get possessed by demons if we sin or look at the wrong things. First of all, there's not enough demons for that, and they're not omnipresent. Chances are slim. But rather, this, this is a warning for us to make sure that we're not dwelling on or being discipled by anything which is false or unhelpful or distracting or, yes, evil. Because darkness often disguises itself as light. Instead, Jesus is calling the crowd to keep their eye on him because as it says in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. With our eyes on Jesus, the light of the world, we'll see truth and wisdom and life. And in the same vein, the only way we can both discern and resist being deceived or or tempted is if we're filled by his truth. And this is the battle. This is the battle. This is why we're called to put on the armor of God. As uh, John Mark Comer writes, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. One of Jesus's most famous teachings is this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The issue with the crowd in in the passage, though, is that they were unwilling or unable to see the truth, right? They were unable or unwilling to see Jesus for who he truly is, because they maybe unknowingly loved the darkness. And so instead, they begin to to suspect or or accuse him of being an agent of Beelzebul, and if not, that he should at least give them a sign from heaven to prove himself. And Beelzebul, of of course, is a, a nickname for the the Satan, uh, the devil, and is often translated as Lord of the Flies, or, or even Lord of the Dwelling, which seems fitting for this subject matter of who or what is dwelling within us. But in reply to their suspicions, Jesus basically tells them that it would make absolutely no sense if it was the devil who had given him authority to cast out his own demons, Right? He actually quotes the former U.S. President Abraham Lincoln by saying, a house divided its against itself cannot stand. I'm just kidding about the Lincoln thing. Though Lincoln often does get credit for that quote, doesn't he? When he himself was actually quoting Jesus. And, and it's a valid point, right? In any movement, whether it's good or nefarious, if there's, a, 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 if there's division of opinion or purpose within the core group or within the membership, that movement will eventually break up and break apart. And I know that we've seen that in churches even, sadly. And we know from Scripture that the devil himself uses this weapon of division, usually alongside lies and deceit, as one of his primary methods for creating disunity and offense. So why would he seek to use his own weapon against himself? Jesus is right. That would make no sense. Besides, it would also implicate anyone else who's casting out demons. So if not by the power of Beezable... Then Jesus tells them there's only one other option, and it can only mean one thing. He says in Luke 11:20, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So whenever the phrase finger of God is, is used in Scripture, it's used in reference uh, to the redeeming power of God at work. Like in the days of Moses, when, when Pharaoh's magicians were unable to m- mimic the plague of gnats, and they're forced to admit that it must be the finger of God at work. Or like when the Ten Commandments were inscribed upon the tablets, it says it was, they were inscribed by the finger of God. Uh, as Tibitian Yabwile writes, this phrase shows up in the Bible when God's power and revelation and redemption advances in a new way. So no, Jesus is not acting on behalf of Satan here. He's acting as the finger of God. Jesus is telling them straight up here that he is the redeeming power of God and the revelation of God's new kingdom come. That's what he's telling them right here, that that he's brought with him a new and more powerful kingdom. And on that end, he, he describes himself as a stronger soldier who crushes the enemy and gathers the spoils. The gates of hell shall not prevail against him, right? But then then he also makes it clear that there are only two possible responses to this power and revelation of the kingdom come being presented before them. To see it and believe it or to turn from it. So Jesus actually states it more bluntly than that when he says about himself from verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, there's no middle ground or neutral ground here when it comes to being part of God's kingdom. You're either with Jesus or you're not. You're either lights of Christ and workers of the gospel of the kingdom of God or you're actively setting yourself up against it therefore, we, we can surmise that this is a, a, a loving warning from Christ to us all, that no one can, can remain neutral or lazy in their faith for very long in this spiritual battle for their soul. The good news and saving power of God through Jesus Christ demands a response. But if our response, like many in Israel, like the crowd that day, would be to reject Jesus or to even refuse to make a decision either way, it's like, I'm not sure, I'm, I'll decide later, right? then our end will be worse than our beginning. And that's not a threat. That's a a reality. Because again, as Jesus illustrated, that that demon which was initially removed, it'll just eventually come back around again to, to find that his former apartment is still vacant and vulnerable. But that's not what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to dwell on him so that we can be set free from the power of sin and evil. More than that, he wants us to remain free he wants us to be filled with his light, with his word, and with his spirit, so, so, so we can not only keep the darkness at bay, but, but so that we can discern it and overcome it and even expose it, expose its lies and deceptions. Just as it says in Ephesians 5, um, 6 to 11, it says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Around around this point, while Jesus is talking, a woman yells out from the crowd something about how his mother must be blessed because of him. And Jesus says, rather, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. Blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. Again, when we hear the word of God, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, it demands a response the fruit of light is is believing it and living it out. And on that end, we're reminded that that even the Ninevites repented and, and believed in the word of the Lord, which was simply given to them from the mouth of Jonah. Right, The only sign he gave them was a warning of judgment and repentance for their sin. And then the queen of Sheba traveled a very long way to hear and receive the wisdom of God, the wisdom of Solomon, which is the wisdom of God. And yet right in front of the crowd stood the one who was greater than both Jonah and Solomon. If only they could have opened their eyes to see him. You know, as as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, 24, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And and we see in this, the passage from Luke, in, in one simple conversation with the crowd, Jesus had revealed himself as such, as both the power of God, right, the finger of God, and the word and wisdom of God, greater than Jonah and Solomon. The power of God and the wisdom of His presence and his word alone should have been more than enough of a sign for them to recognize the kingdom come. It should have been more than enough for them to repent and believe in him as the Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. Especially because both the the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, who weren't even Jews but Gentiles, believed and sought out God with even less. But again, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is, Is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As I said, there there are only two sides to this spiritual battle: those who are perishing in darkness because they found the gospel to be folly to them, and those who are being saved by the power of Christ because they've placed their eyes upon Him in faith and are being filled by His light. And those who do have their eyes on Christ are the only ones who can proclaim with confidence and authority that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Which again is a reminder for us that what we dwell on determines what dwells within us. And so the question for each of you then is, what are you dwelling on? What are you dwelling on? we truly spending a good use of our our time and our days dwelling on God's Word and setting our eyes upon Him in prayer and fasting and faithfully following Him and living out our lives in obedience for Him as lights in the world? Or are our eyes often wandering elsewhere? I'm not sure if I, I want to know all your answers to that question, but what I do know is that the average North American teen spends four to eight hours a day with their eyes on screens. Scrolling through social media, watching YouTube videos, binging Netflix. That's not surprising, really. It's sad, but it's not surprising. Most of them them even get their news from TikTok or YouTube. Yikes. But did you also know that the average adult spends about seven hours a day doing the same thing? Seven hours a day, binging shows, scrolling social media, watching news or sports or whatever. I know Pastor Brad brought this up last week, this idea of social media, challenged us to take a break from it. And my wife and I are going to do that. And I've heard a couple other people are going to do that as well. And I think that's a good thing. And obviously, screens are just one possible example of what we could be dwelling on instead of Christ. But my guess is it's a good one. And it's an applicable one for most of us. So seriously, what are we really dwelling on? What are we really consuming? Because the answer to that question is what's in us. What we're dwelling on is what is actually forming us and discipling us. And we can say, well, I did my 10-minute devotions this morning. But then you spent eight hours watching screens. And sure, while our screens and media aren't evil in and of themselves, and it's fine to check, check that stuff once in a while, depending on what we're watching, of course, but again, this passage reminds us that even neutrality leaves us open and vulnerable to be filled with lies and false truths, which is why as, as long as we have our eyes off of Jesus and off of his word and onto the things of the world, like screens or false prophets or selfish desires or whatever else, then Satan is a happy camper, On that note, Alan Jacobs, humanities professor from Baylor University, writes, so if people are getting one kind of catechesis, which means Bible teaching, right, for for half an hour per week, say at church, and another for dozens of hours per week on screens, which one do you think will win out? This is true of both the Christian left and the Christian right. People come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensively catechized to believe, and that catechesis comes not from churches, but from the media that consume them. The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. Furthermore, what all those media want is engagement. And engagement is most reliably driven by anger and hatred, they make bank when we hate each other, and so that hatred migrates into the church. As Jesus said, be careful that the light in you isn't darkness. Be careful that you're not opening yourself up or leaving yourself vulnerable to lies and false truths by by neglecting to be filled with the Word of God and walking in it. Be careful that the things you dwell on which, which you think are harmless or even good for you aren't actually leading you away from the truth in light of Christ. Because again, what we dwell on determines what dwells within us. And this is summed up well in Colossians 2, 8 to 10. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And again, as as Jesus has said in, in in the passage from this morning, he's the lamp. And he's put his lamp on a stand for all to see. He's the light of the world and he's made himself known because he wants us to see him and dwell on him and be filled by him. Because when we do turn to him and, and make him our focus, then the darkness will no longer have any hold on us. Because he's won the victory over at, at the cross. As children of light, we no longer belong to the darkness. In the same vein, we'll no longer have to live in ignorance to, to, the, to the truth because his word has been given and is readily available to us. It's the lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And in Christ, we no longer have to walk with purposelessness, wandering around in the darkness, following the the course of this world because we have His spirit within us to empower us and light the way. As Jesus himself said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And in the same vein, we no longer have to walk in the fear of evil or live in the fear of darkness. Instead, we can expose it and resist it, proclaiming with confidence that the light that is in us overcomes the darkness. Again, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But the fact still remains. In order to be filled with his light and therefore resist the darkness, we need to place our eye upon that light. Jesus, his saving power and his truth needs to become the priority in our lives, needs to remain the priority in our lives. It needs to be our focus, our desire, our guide, our strength, and our joy. As Daryl Bach writes, guidance is available through Jesus' teaching, but it guides only when it is seen and received. The crowds that day couldn't see Jesus They couldn't see his light or receive his wisdom and grace because they were shrouded in the darkness of deception and lies. And even when Jesus revealed his power and truth in that moment, they still lingered in doubt and uncertainty, wanting to see a sign, and consequently just left themselves open and vulnerable for the darkness to return. But each of us today has a choice to be like that crowd, living in darkness, remaining in darkness, or we can be in the light to see and believe in Jesus Christ with faith and to walk in the, his power and in his wisdom. As he says in John 12, 35 to 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons or inheritors of light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to be able to stand in your presence, in your glory, and your holiness because of Jesus, because of what He did for us by taking upon the judgment of our sin, the consequence of our sin at the cross in our place. And defeating it, and crushing not only not only the what was in us, but Lord, but but the evil in the world, Lord. Defeating it, defeating that darkness with with light. Lord, I thank you that you want us to to see that light, to be filled with that light, and to walk in that light. And so, Lord, I pray that we would walk in it. That we would see it and receive it and know it. Lord, open our eyes to see it. To make it a priority in our lives. And to focus on it day in and day out. That you would be glorified in us. That your name would be made known in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.